in a crude laboratory in the basement of his home. And welcome to the CEO Radar Podcast. It's your host, John Mayetta. Strategic M&A. M&A as a strategy. I enjoy M&A because I'm more of a strategy guy than a transaction guy. I take the long view as opposed to the immediate term view. I prefer, and if you follow me on Instagram, you'll know, I prefer to cook my own meals as opposed to fast food. I love long-term strategy. I love how while the traditional movie studios take a five-year view to their production slate, Amazon's taking a 50-year view. I'm Amazon in that equation. I like the ultra-long view. Working to build CEO rate of here for the next 50 years, the next 100 years. Whether it's a standalone or part of something larger, so long as it's alive and well. So we're going to layer a strategic advisory practice on top of the, the data platform. And it got me thinking this morning that I should talk a little bit about M&A as a strategy. Particularly in the world of software, the space that I know and have made my career. M&A is a strategy works in, in any industry vertical. But I'm going to talk about software. And in the world of strategic M&A, the deal that you don't do, the acquisition that you do not do, is oftentimes the right decision, the correct decision, and as important as any decision in which you decide to do the deal. You've got to know when to fold them, as the song says, particularly when the cultures don't mesh. So Amazon acquired Whole Foods. Similar businesses, yet different. Both companies have a footprint in grocery, while well, one company is all about groceries. The other has a portion of their business in groceries. You may say, geez, wow, very different in that one is an online business and one is offline, old world brick and mortar. The reason that deal will work is because, number one, the cultures are similar, particularly at the top with Bezos and, and John Mackey. Number two, they are in broadly defined the same business, groceries. And number three, they complement each other in that one is online and one is traditional brick-and-mortar retail. But the most important element is that the cultures are similar and therefore they'll find a way to make it work. The reason why most deals fall apart is the cultures don't mesh. Now, I'm not one of these guys who will tell you that one and one makes three. I think there can be synergies when companies get together, but they're typically small. Now, there are cost synergies where you can save by removing redundancy particularly back office redundancy, this type of thing. But as, as I've talked about in podcasts past, it is difficult to bring new product to market. It's just the hard thing to do and to have major success with that product, You know, to have it grow by double-digit percentage growth rates year over year. It's a hard thing to do, particularly within the world of software, enterprise software, particularly as a company achieves skill. It is difficult. And by putting two companies together doesn't mean that you're going to accelerate growth steady state once you've lapped the acquisition. So revenue synergies are just, I've always been skeptical of them. I don't, I don't buy into them ever. But where deals can work is if you have similar cultures, the, the people from company A and company B are going to enjoy working together. And if it's a complementary style acquisition that we're talking about, Company A has a particular software product. Company B has you know, a similar product, but it's sort of a, an ancillary product set that complements the product set of, of Company A. Those are the best kind of acquisitions. Where the product, you know, they're in a similar space, a similar vertical, the two companies in question. Product sets complement each other, and the cultures mesh. 
And the reason why it's so important that the cultures are similar when doing acquisitions is because in, inevitably you're going to hit obstacles, not only in the deal. If you can't overcome deal obstacles, then you, you, sh- you shouldn't do the deal. If everything is a struggle in working through a deal, you, you probably shouldn't be doing the deal. But post-deal close, there are going to be operational issues. And I'm not talking about integration and stuff like that. I'm talking about steady state. There are going to be challenges, bringing new product to market, delighting customers. And when the two companies fit from a culture standpoint, the creative juices start flowing. And that's when the magic happens. It sounds silly, difficult to quantify. Eventually, it flows through the numbers and you can't qualify it. But the, the, this issue of chemistry, you hear about it all the time in, with sports teams. It happens in business, too. When company A and company B have chemistry, that's when they create value together through products and services that provide real t- tangible value to customers. If company A and company B, from the CEO on down, if the, the two companies can't stand each other, don't have chemistry, it's going to manifest itself in, in, in lack of creativity in the product portfolio. The, the two product portfolios aren't going to bridge with one another. You, you get my point. So that's free advice. Point number one, whether you're a private company, a public company, small cap, mid cap, large cap, two startups, make sure the companies fit. So I would, from a cultural standpoint, make sure there's a cultural fit. So let's, let me give you a scenario. Let's say there are sort of three companies in an industry, that the, the three leaders, there's maybe a dozen companies, there's top two guys, or the clear kind of one and two, and number three is, is the clear three, but somewhat distant to, to one and two. Let's say two and three that can get together and overtake company one from a revenue standpoint, a profitability standpoint, from a size standpoint. So from that standpoint, it's attractive. But everybody in the industry knows that company two and three the management teams, the leadership teams, can't stand each other. A lot of bad, bad blood, broken glass, this type of thing. It's been going on for years. And oh, by the way, the product sets aren't really complementary. It's just more of a scale acquisition. They essentially do the exact same thing in a very similar way. And so you're really just capturing scale by doing this deal. Don't do the deal. Whether you're company number two or company number three, don't do the deal. Better go at it alone. Just keep working it over time. Keep iterating on your own. If you find a complementary acquisition where there's good chemistry, that could be the catalyst to help you leapfrog if you're number three, help you leapfrog number two and become the new number two, maybe even the new number one over time. Similarly, if you're a company two in that scenario. So sometimes it's the correct decision is to not do the deal. If you're the, the seller, question I would ask you is, why do you want to sell? Maybe I wouldn't ask you that question if you've been a public company for 30 years, you're on CEO number six, and it's clearly that the market wants it, the board wants it. It's an obvious sort of fit. But if you're the first CEO, you're the founder, private company or public, why now? Because most founders, when they sell, they regret it. So if you want to sell your baby, first question I would ask you is, why and why now? Why not a piece of it? If you already sold pieces of it to, to venture and what have you, why now exit it completely? Why not become chairman or chairwoman and bring on a CEO? How do you think about valuation? Valuation is usually a, a relatively easy one, particularly if the companies have been around, the company, the target company, companies. If they've been around for some time, 
They've been going concerns for some time. They have real revenue, real operating profit. There are companies in the public market. There are comps, as we say in the industry. It's relatively easy to, to arrive at a valuation. You typically get hung up on structure. How are we going to be compensated? Maybe you get paid on 60% upfront, 40% over time via an earnout. And of that 40%, you only capture 100% of the 40% if you meet all of the, the financial milestones that are structured in the deal. Pay for performance. That's a good way to do deals. That, that way, you'll find, if you already haven't experienced it yourself, but you'll find oftentimes when you go to acquire companies, that said target company paints rosy pictures about their future. How do you know if it's true? You can only do so much due diligence. You can only look at so many pipeline reports. You can only have so much faith. Why not pay for performance? You hit your projections. We agree upon milestones, top line, bottom line. You'll get 100% of the payout over time. Maybe we pay you a little bit more than kind of what you're looking for if it's a competitive deal. If you hit your forward projections, pay for performance. Sort of like I was talking about with taxes the other day. Pay as you go. You perform, you get paid. You knock it out of the park, you get paid a little bit more. Maybe you get paid 110% of your bogey if you hit a home run. If you have questions about reps and warranties and things like this, talk to your lawyer. They're common on every deal. That's not where the strategic value is. If you have questions about accounting, taxes, that's real stuff. Talk to your accountant. Talk to your CFO. Talk to your tax department if you're a, you know, an established company. Depending on how the deal is treated, the real tax benefits, the certain uh, accounting treatments versus others. You can make the government your partner by not giving the government more than their due amount. But the real value, other than the valuation, because in terms of the, the, the deal, the total purchase price, that's the part of the negotiation that matters the most. Setting the price, setting the, the payment structure. Not so much the, the accounting treatment, not so much the, the legalities. But the real value is a function of whether the two companies are a good fit from a cultural standpoint, from a product stat standpoint. Great cultural fit, products are slightly complementary or entirely complementary. Great. That's not to say some t that um, uh, if you have a good, you know, good cultural fit and, um, and the products are more or less similar, in other words, a, a quote-unquote scale acquisition, that's not to say scale acquisitions don't have value. But again, if you have great cultural fit, complementary products and services sets, uh, that's when you can really make some magic happen. And it is difficult to quantify. I mean, it's almost impossible to quantify at deal time. I'm not talking about your financial models. Of course, you can extrapolate forward, put the, the, the current product portfolio of the two companies and, and putting them together. Of course, you can do the math on that. That part's easy. What I'm talking about is the stuff that hasn't yet been developed, the, the products and services that you guys haven't yet invented together, the combined effort in new product areas. Don't bake what that may look like into your assumptions. That's not what I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is it's that, it's that qualitative stuff that creative magic that can happen if you get the culture right, that you won't model into the deal, but where the real value is going to come from over time. Remember I talked about in the Amazon Key podcast that because Amazon has bundled all these services together over time under the umbrella, that it, it's essentially enabled straight through processing for transactions powered by its, its Alexa AI. Maybe Jeff Bezos had a vision for some of this, back in the 90s when he founded the company, but he couldn't have foreseen all of this. And because they kept iterating and were creative and developed and acquired a variety of companies in different spaces, the common theme of which 
was a passion and a mission to delight the customer. And that's how they, they, they benchmarked cultural fit when they looked at acquisitions, by the way. But services like Key start to make sense because of Amazon's breadth and diversity of products and services. Alexa has an advantage over the other AI platforms because of Amazon's breadth and diversity of services. So the old Sumner Redstone saying in, in media that content is king, I would say. John Maeda's rule for strategic M&A, culture is king. See you all next time.